On November 24th, 1971, a passenger identifying himself as Dan Cooper, later to be known as D.B. Cooper, skyjacked a Boeing 727 airplane en route to the Seattle-Tacoma airport. Armed with a case that he claimed contained a bomb, D.B. Cooper demanded and received four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. Cooper then jumped from the back of the airplane somewhere over southwestern Washington state. He was never seen or heard from again. And neither was the $200,000 in $20 bills. Until February 1980, when a young boy named Brian Ingram found $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's now decomposing money on the beach of the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. I hold one of those decomposing $20 bills in my hand. How did I come to possess one of D.B. Cooper's $20 bills? Well, I didn't buy it at an auction or pay $6,500 for one, which is what some people of late have been paying for in recent years. Brian Ingram has auctioned off some of the $20 bills in recent years and has received as much as $6,500 for each one. But that's not how I came to possess one of the decomposed $20 bills. And I'm not D.B. Cooper, by the way. (laughs) I wasn't born yet. I came to own one of these $20 bills because Brian Ingram promised me one. Brian Ingram promised me one of D.B. Cooper's $20 bills the day that he told me he found some of the money when he was 10 years old. It was during my senior year of high school when Brian moved to my town and we quickly became best friends. And one night as a few of us were driving around, he asked us if we've ever heard of D.B. Cooper. And I told him, of course I have. I'm like obsessed with him. I've seen the movie The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper starring Treat Williams a million times. I'm fascinated with the story. Why do you ask? And then Brian told us, I found the money. I found D.B. Cooper's money, to which I quickly replied, liar, (laughs) shut up, quit making fun of my passion. We didn't believe him, so we drove to Brian's house, and he showed us a photo album of all of the newspaper clippings that verified that he had, in fact, found $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's money in 1980 when he was 10 years old. Brian began to tell us how how he found the money. As a 10-year-old boy, he was camping with his family on the Columbia River, and his dad said, it's time to build a fire. And Brian began leveling out the sand and smoothing out the sand like a young boy might do. And when he scooped and scooped and leveled out the sand, he said, all of a sudden, this money just appeared. The money had been decomposing because it had been buried for about eight years. His parents grabbed the money, left their campsite, took the money to the authorities, and after running the serial numbers, the authorities discovered that this was a portion of the money that D.B. Cooper had stolen during the hijacking in 1971. Brian's family was told that they could keep the decomposed money or turn it over to the authorities. If they turned the money over, they were promised that they could collect all of the reward money that had been offered for any leads on the case. 
They were also told that the reward money was far more than the $5,800 that they had found. So the Ingrams signed the papers, handed the money over, fully expecting to collect all of the reward monies. The authorities left the room and came back and then dropped a bomb on them. They told the Ingrams that the statute of limitations had unfortunately expired on all of the reward money that was being offered, and Brian's family suddenly had nothing. The Ingrams soon hired a lawyer, and after a long court battle, they won their money back. But because Brian was the one who found the money, they were told that they could not access it until Brian turned 18. So the money was stored away in a safety deposit box, and when Brian turned 18, he made good on his promise, and he gave me one of the bills. That's how I came to own one of these which is worth (laughs) $6,500. I own a $20 bill that was used in a 1971 hijacking because a 10-year-old boy scooped and smoothed and leveled the ground where his dad was making a fire. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 is kind of like that. There's a lot of gold. There's a lot of treasure deep beneath it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to level it out a little. We're going to smooth it out so that we can see what treasures are lurking underneath. Now, before we begin, I want to explain the sermon title. First, it has been a very busy week for me. The elders have been working hard on our constitution and our affirmation of faith and tweaking that. It was a lot of meetings, very busy. I was out half a day this week because I was sick, so that put me behind. And even though I've been studying this passage for weeks and meditating on it, I still wasn't sure what angle I would take. Remember, I told you last week that the first four verses of Hebrews have a lot of meat in them. So I wasn't sure what direction I would go this week. So I went back and forth all week, and I sent in two different sermon titles to Stephanie. And on Thursday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I still had a blank Word document. And so that's why the title to this sermon is, The Worst Sermon in the History of the Church. At 1 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, and then again at 9.50 on Friday morning, I really believe that this sermon had the potential to be the worst sermon in the history of the church. I figured I could only go up from there. Right? Set the bar so low that the only way to go is up. Well, here's the big idea of potentially the worst sermon in the history of the church, and it's this. Be awestruck by Jesus. I think that's the treasure that lies beneath verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 1. And we're actually going to be looking only at half of the verse today. We will look at the rest of verse 2 in two weeks. But if you can read between the lines here, you'll see several reasons why we should be awestruck by Jesus. So let's read our passage and then we'll unpack the reasons why we should be awestruck by Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. We'll begin with verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Just as my friend Brian 
smoothed out the sand and all of that treasure was exposed. Let's see what treasure lies buried deep within verse two that should cause us to be in awe of who Jesus Christ is. So let's just start talking about why we should be awestruck by Jesus. What treasures lurk under this phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things. First, we should be awestruck by Jesus because he is God's son, and as God's son, he owns everything. Everything belongs to Jesus, including this decomposing D.B. Cooper $20 bill. I really don't own it. Jesus owns it. Everything belongs to Jesus. The entire world, the entire universe belongs to the son of God. Think about this. Your Savior owns Saturn. Think about that. Jesus is the heir to all of creation. Let that sink in. Your Savior owns Saturn. He owns Jupiter. He owns the sun, which has been unusually relentless over the past few weeks here on the Central Coast. Has it not? Jesus owns the entire universe. In fact, one of the uh, Dutch theologians, Abraham Kuyper, said, there's not a square inch in the universe that Jesus does not put his finger down and say, mine. Everything belongs to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews, as he makes this statement, has Psalm 2 in mind. He has Psalm 2 in mind when he tells us that God has appointed his son, Jesus Christ, as the heir of all things. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will quote Psalm 2 in verse 5 that we'll look at in several weeks, but he's certainly alluding to it here in verse 2. Jesus is the heir of all things, but what is his inheritance as God's son? What is the inheritance that belongs to Jesus? Psalm 2 tells us that, which I think the writer is alluding to. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9 says this. As for me, this is the Lord speaking, God the Father, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the the decree. This is now Jesus speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What does God the Father say in Psalm 2 to Jesus, the Messiah, his son? Roughly, God the Father says this to Jesus. You are my son. I have installed you as king. Your kingdom will cover the whole earth. Yes, we started in the backwoods of Judah with just 11 acres. Yes, we started with a rinky-dink kingdom in Zion, but your kingdom will be worldwide, son. Your kingdom sweeps the entire earth, the entire universe. All nations belong to you, son. All nations will bow down before you. And how will we accomplish this? You, my son, shall break them with an iron rod. With a war club, you will smash them like pottery. 
That's what God is saying to Jesus in Psalm 2. God is saying this to Jesus. I love you, son, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. You will take a war club to your enemies. Your kingdom will reign forever. And some of you are just getting warmed up to Jesus. Some of you may be thinking, hey, pastor, I was just starting to like this king that's mentioned in Psalm 2. He's this underdog. He comes from nothing. He comes from the backwoods of Judah, and then he becomes king. I like that story. And you had to go ruin it with all this talk about nations getting beaten down by a war club and being smashed into pieces. I don't like that, Jesus, pastor. I like my Jesus with nicely feathered hair and soft, silky hands that smell like flowery lotion. I'm sorry to offend you this morning, but this is vintage Jesus. The king swinging the war club in Psalm 2, the one who is the heir to everything, the one who has the nations as his inheritance, that king is Jesus. And when he returns, he's not setting up a lemonade stand. When he returns, he will not be singing Open Arms by rock group Journey. He is not giving a trophy to everyone because they played the game of humanity. He is coming back, but not to be welcomed by a world that loves him. He is coming back to nations and kingdoms that hate his guts. And he will impose his rule by force on rebellious people because this world, this universe belongs to him. That means then that this picture of Jesus swinging a war club when he returns, it must infect your politics. This picture of Jesus reigning as king over his enemies must infect and get down into the pores of your politics. This picture of Jesus reigning as king over his enemies must be what stirs your emotions when you watch the news. It must be what stirs your emotions when you read the newspapers. It must be what stirs your emotions when you forward those political emails And stop forwarding those political emails. Obama is not the Antichrist, I don't think. It must be what stirs your emotions when you comment on all those political pictures on Facebook. And when you watch the presidential debates on TV, it must be this picture of Jesus returning and imposing his rule upon his enemies. It must be that picture of Jesus that governs everything that you think and feel. God loves Jesus and has a wonderful plan for his life. He will rule over his enemies. He will impose his rule with a war club because he is the rightful heir to this world. And this is your God, Christian. He reigns supreme. He rules over the nations. The nations belong to him. Oh, I know we don't see that much in our world, We don't see the nations in submission to Jesus. We don't see politicians in submission to Jesus. We don't see governments in submission to Jesus. But this is a part of God's plan. Everything belongs to his son, 
And everything and everyone will submit to the Son. But we don't see that right now. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says this later on two times. In chapter 2 and then chapter 10. Hebrews 2 verses 5 through 8. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So we don't see all things put under Jesus' feet right now, but we know that they really are, and we know that they really be, will be one day. But right now, we see people doing what they want to do. We see people as it doesn't look like that person is in subjection to Jesus. We see a world full of people doing what they want to do. We see organizations like Planned Parenthood doing what they want to do. We see politicians and governments and world leaders and terrorists doing what they want to do in total defiance of King Jesus. And that's why we must hover over Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Because this verse is full of hope. And that means that the phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things... That phrase should comfort your stressed out heart. That phrase should comfort your worried, sick heart. That phrase should comfort your what in the world is happening to this country heart. The phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things, should bring a strong sense of consolation to you this morning. And that's exactly what Puritan John Owen said in his commentary on Hebrews. He said, this, pa- this passage should bring consolation and comfort to the hearts of believers because we are rightly related to this king. He says this, and this in general is fully asserted in the scripture unto the consolation of the church and the terror of his adversaries. This, I say, is the spring of the church's glory, comfort, and assurance. It is our head, husband, and elder brother who is gloriously vested with all this power. Our nearest relation, our best friend, is thus exalted. Not to a place of honor and trust under others, a thing that contents the airy fancy of poor earthworms, nor yet to a kingdom on the earth, a matter that swells some with pride and even breaks them with pride, no, nor yet to an empire over this perishing world, but to an abiding and everlasting rule and dominion over the whole creation of God. And it is but a little while before he will cast off and dispel all those clouds and shades which at present interpose themselves. And those things that eclipse his glory and majesty from them that love him. 
He who in the days of his flesh was reviled, reproached, persecuted, crucified for our sakes, that same Jesus is thus exalted and made a prince and a savior, having a name given him above every name. For though he was dead, yet he is alive and lives forever and hath the keys of hell and death. These things are everywhere proposed for the consolation of the church. How strange that eight words in English, whom he appointed the heir of all things. How strange that eight words in the English language could comfort the hearts of Christians who feel that everything in their country and everything in their world is crumbling down around them. Maybe we should start putting Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 on our coffee mugs. Maybe instead of putting a picture of our food on Instagram, which we all know took you 30 minutes to prepare so that when you finally took a bite, it was cold. Maybe instead of putting a picture of our food on Instagram, I'm not against that, but maybe for once we just took a picture of the Bible and highlighted Hebrews chapter one, verse two. Maybe we could update our status on Facebook with these words, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Those eight words would make an excellent tattoo. Those eight words might be exactly what you need to hear in the coming months and years if this country continues crumbling. Those eight words might be just what you need to hear over and over again over the course of the next 14 months as this country anticipates electing a new president. Eight words to remind you and console you and comfort you that Jesus reigns and everything in this world belongs to him. Eight words to remind you and console you and comfort you that Jesus is coming back and he will have a war club in his hand to take out his enemies. Eight words to remind you and console you and comfort you that Jesus will make everything new and we as his adopted children united to him by faith, we will reign with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is your savior, Christian. He reigns supreme. He is sovereign over every atom. He is sovereign over every molecule. He is sovereign over every detail. He is sovereign over every event. Sovereign over every decision. Sovereign over every law that is passed. Sovereign over every presidential debate. Sovereign over every presidential election. He owns and controls everything. Nothing happens in this world unless it comes across his desk first. He has been appointed by God the Father as the heir of everything. This is your God, Christian. And that should cause you to be awestruck by Jesus But it's not just Christians who are to stand in awe of Jesus. This passage strikes a warning to unbelievers. If you don't know Jesus and Jesus is not your treasure and you can't say today that Jesus is better than everything, 
then you need to heed what else John Owen said about this verse. He said this, the consideration of it also, Jesus reigning supreme as king, the consideration of it also is suited to strike terror into the hearts of ungodly men that oppose him in the world. Whom is it that they do despise? Against whom do they magnify themselves and lift up their horns on high? Whose ordinances, laws, institutions do they contemn? Whose gospel do they refuse obedience unto? Whose people and servants do they revile and persecute? Is it not he? Are they not his who hath all power in heaven and in earth committed unto him? In whose hand are the lives, the souls, all the concernments of his enemies? If you don't know Jesus this morning, these words need to strike terror in your heart. You need to repent of your sin and your rebellion against the God who made you. Against the God whom you will stand before one day and give an account of your life. Run this morning to the only one that can save you. He's coming back again, and he will have a war club in his hand. I don't want that for any of you. Just cry out now, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every one of us here, we should all be awestruck by Jesus this morning. Every one of us here should be amazed at just how merciful and how long-suffering and patient he is with us. We should be astonished at his grace which is freely given to rebellious sinners. We should be flabbergasted that God would send his one and only beloved son to live and to die for us. We should be at a loss for words when we see Jesus and when we get a vision and when we catch a glimpse of who he is. When we see Jesus As the one whom God appointed the heir of all things, we should become wonderstruck worshipers. When we see Jesus in all of his glory as the rightful heir to this world, we should become wonderstruck worshipers. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, as the appointed heir of all things, he shares his inheritance with us, his children. That's amazing. Jesus is not stingy. He is the rightful heir to all of creation. And he shares that with those who have been united to him by faith. He does that because God has qualified us to be heirs with him. Colossians chapter one, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you are no longer a slave, Christian. You are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus came to redeem us, to buy us back out of the slavery of sin and death and the elementary principles of this world. He came to adopt us as sons, sons and daughters. That's the so that of Galatians 4, 5 so that we might receive adoption as sons. That means if you've turned from your sins and you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are a son of God and heir. The inheritance is yours. You are in God's family. He loves you. You are adopted. The papers are signed. The inheritance is yours. God the Father loves you, all because of Jesus. All because Jesus was obedient to the law. All because Jesus took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. Because of his life, his death, his resurrection, the inheritance is yours. You are qualified, and no one can take that away from you. What were the Hebrews struggling with? Remember from our introduction last week? Why did the author of Hebrews write this letter? Because the audience that he was writing to, they were being pressured and tempted to return to the law to be justified, to do good works in order to be made right with God. They were trying to earn their inheritance. So the author of Hebrews is perplexed. If the gospel is such good news, if these Hebrew believers are adopted into God's family and God loves them with an everlasting love and they share already in Christ's inheritance, then why in the world do they want to be enslaved again to the law and to the old covenant? Why do they want to go back to those laws? Why do they want to say that law that says we can't mix certain kinds of fabric with our clothing, let's go back and do that. That law that says we cannot boil a young goat in its mother's milk, let's go back to that law to do that to try to be made right with God. He's saying, what are you thinking? If Jesus fully obeyed the law for them, why do they want to try and keep the law in order to gain God's favor? If they already have all of the love and all of the acceptance that the gospel provides, why do they want to try and earn it? Because they, like us, often lose sight of the gospel and we start acting like orphans. We start acting like we can earn our inheritance. We start acting like we have to do something in order to be qualified. We forget the good news of the gospel that God in his son Jesus has already qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This was a temptation for the audience of Hebrews and it's a temptation that we face too. So let me ask you this morning. Are you acting like a scared orphan or a secure son? 
How are you acting today? Do you functionally exist as an orphan or a son or a daughter who already has the inheritance? You function like an orphan when you worry and doubt God's love for you. You function, you exist in your life. You go through life like an orphan when you worry and doubt God's love for you. That was me this morning getting up. God, I just don't feel like, how can you love me? I'm such a sinner, God. The son or the daughter rests in their father's never-ending love for his child. Orphans worry. Sons trust. Orphans worry. Their mind races. Sons, trust. The Hebrews were worrying that they needed to do something to earn forgiveness, to earn God's grace. So they were being pressured to come back under the old covenant to be justified. They were functioning like orphans, not sons who were already qualified for the inheritance. You function like an orphan when your relationship with God is seen through the lens of success and failure. You know you're functioning like an orphan in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, when your relationship with God is seen through the lens of success and failure. The son or the daughter rests in the truth that they are absolutely loved, absolutely forgiven, absolutely cherished by God. Orphans focus on their failures. Sons rest in Jesus' righteousness. You know you're functioning like an orphan when you are obsessed with your failures, with your shortcomings, with your sin, with your behavior. You know you're a son when you're resting in the behavior of Jesus, when you're resting in his righteousness. The orphan is defensive when accused of error or weakness. You know you're functioning like an orphan when you're defensive when you get accused of error or wrongdoing or weakness. The son or the daughter is open to criticism because they rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. See, orphans can't handle criticism. Sons of God and daughters of God have God's favor so they don't fear what people think of them. Orphans can't handle criticism. Sons and daughters rest in Jesus' righteousness because they have God's favor and that's all that matters. Don't we all struggle with that? We have the inheritance because Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. We're united to him by faith. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints of light and yet we function like orphans sometimes when somebody criticizes us or points out our wrongdoings, we get defensive. Sons say, bring it on because I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. You're right. I am a mess. The orphan is a competent analyst of other people's sins and failures and weaknesses. You know you're functioning like an orphan when you become a competent analyst of everybody else's sins, everybody else's failures, everybody else's weaknesses. The son or the daughter, on the other hand, is able to freely confess their faults to one another because they know that no matter what, they are loved by their heavenly father. Orphans focus on other people's sins. 
Sons freely confess their sins. You know you're functioning like an orphan who isn't remembering that you have the inheritance because Jesus was appointed the heir of all things. You know you're functioning like an orphan when you are obsessed with everybody else's sins. Sons and daughters of the king freely confess their sins because they know they're forgiven. They know they have God's favor. They know they have the inheritance because they have been united by faith to Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, are you acting like a scared orphan or a secure son today? Do you functionally exist as an orphan or a son? Do you really believe that you are a son or a daughter of the king? Do you really believe that God stands with arms wide open, always, always, always allowing you free access to his presence? Or do you view God as a cranky father with his arms crossed and a frown on his face? Do you really believe that you've been qualified by God and the inheritance is already yours? Or do you live like somehow there's something you can do that would make God remove you, take you out of his will? I'm gonna take you out of the will because of your behavior. You can't out grace. You can't sin your way out of the will. You can't sin your way out of the inheritance. You can mess up your life big time because of sin. So I encourage you this morning, put sin to death by the power of the spirit and the word of God. You can mess your life up big time because of sin, but you can't sin your way out of grace. You can't sin your way out of the will. You can't sin your way out of the inheritance because Jesus has qualified you. See, the letter to Hebrews, which I told you last week, is really a sermon. It would have been the worst sermon in the world if the author told these believers that they had to earn God's approval, if he told them that their inheritance wasn't secure, but he didn't do that. Instead, he rooted them in eight words that would cause them to become wonderstruck worshipers. He rooted them in eight words, whom he appointed the heir of all things, eight words that should cause every Christian to be awestruck by Jesus. We should all be awestruck by Jesus. Every one of us should be amazed at just how merciful and long-suffering and patient he is with us. We should all be astonished at his grace, which he freely gives to sinners, rebellious sinners like us. We should be flabbergasted that God would send his son to live and die for us. We should be at a loss for words when we see Jesus and when we get a vision and catch a glimpse of who he is, when we see him as the one whom God appointed the heir of all things, when we come to grips with the truth that we are qualified and the inheritance is ours, then we should become wonder-struck worshipers. My friend Brian Ingram was awestruck that day. He smoothed out that sand and all that money was there. And his family was awestruck the day the authorities took the money from them. But the good news of the gospel is that no one will ever take our inheritance from us. It is secure. We are qualified. That's the gospel, and the gospel should cause us to be awestruck this morning. My personal mission in life and the mission of this church mission of grace is simple. We exist to ignite a passion in everyone, every person, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. 
We believe that's why we were created. We, we affirm the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify, and to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We believe that here. But how do we do that as a church? How do we ignite a passion in other people to glorify God and to enjoy him everywhere that they go in this world and everything that they do in this world? Well, Paul Tripp helps us here. He captures the central way in which a church can pull this off, and this is what I want to be the norm here at Grace. I want our DNA to be that we are a church that is awestruck by Jesus. He says this, Awe of God must dominate my ministry because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe of God. A human being not living with functional awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged. He is off the rails, trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow, and he may not even know it. When awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you are not living for God, the only other alternative is to live for yourself. So a church must turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. This means every sermon should be prepared by a person whose study is marked by awe of God. The sermon must be delivered in awe and have as its purpose to motivate awe in those who hear. Children's ministry must have as its goal to ignite in young children a life-shaping awe of God. The youth ministry of the church must move beyond Bible entertainment and do all it can to help teens see God's glory and name it as the thing for which they will live. Women's ministry must do more than give women a place to fellowship with one another and do crafts. Women need to be rescued from themselves and myriad self-interests that nip at their hearts. Awe of God provides that rescue. Men's ministries need to recognize the coldness in the heart of so many men to the things of God and confront and stimulate men with their identity as those created to live and lead out of a humble zeal for God's glory rather than their own. Missions and evangelism too must be awe-driven. Remember, Paul argues that this is the reason for the cross. He says that Jesus came so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Only powerful grace can keep this awe alive. Only then can we be used to ignite that awe in others. That's what I want for grace. That's what I want for this church, that we would live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. And that means then that if you leave here today in more awe of Jesus, then this will not have been the worst sermon in the history of the church. If you leave here today awestruck by Jesus, wanting to honor him with your life, wanting to glorify him with your life, wanting to love him more and more, and wanting to ignite that awe in others, then this will not have been the worst sermon in the history of the church because it will have accomplished the one thing that we and this church need more of, and it's this, more awe of God. Let's pray to the one who has been appointed the heir of all things. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. 
So many times we get caught up in our own little world, building our own kingdoms, fascinated by all the sparkly, shiny things that this world has to offer. And yet Jesus reigns supreme as the glorious Savior who came to rescue sinners. And we forget that. And other things excite us and stir our hearts more. God, make us a church. Make the DNA of our church that we would ignite that awe in others. That we would be awestruck by your son. Would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.